Time for swordplay. Alex, the 117th Congress began with a prayer offered to, quote, the monotheistic God, Brahma, and God known by many names in many different faiths, end quote, and it ended with a man and a woman. Nick, I think that's a great sign. Really? Why is that? Job security for us. <laughs> I mean, where would we be, Nick, if everyone actually knew what amen uh, means? Uh, unemployed. That's where. That's yeah. where we'd be. So. Yeah. I, I, for me, it's it's funny that, uh, or at least weird, that people who thought that 2021 was going to be better than 2020, um, this, this kind of shows we shouldn't be too hopeful about that, <laughs> at least here in America. It's a bad omen for the for the rest of the year. <laughs> this is Swordplay. We are your hosts. I am Nick Perez, preaching minister for the Davis Park Church of Christ in Modesto, California. And I'm Alex Flood, an evangelist for the Lake Phelan Church of Christ in St. Paul, Minnesota. Yes, Swordplay, offering a double-edged perspective on Scripture. And on this episode, you will get the double edge. That's right. Um, as we discuss the descent of Christ especially as it pertains to 1 Peter 3, 18 through 20. And probably, uh, Alex, I know, is going to dip into 4, verse 6 of 1 Peter as well, right? Yeah, that's right. In fact, uh, we left our audience uh, hanging on the edge of their seat, anticipating the incredible study that this will be, right? We skipped over those two verses in 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're dedicating this whole episode to just those two verses and the related verses and the overall subject. And so this is a textual sermon, but also really a topical sermon. And so we are discussing what is called the harrowing of hell or the harrowing of Hades. And so let's just start off by defining what that is. Let's introduce the topic, Nick. What does the harrowing of hell or Hades refer to? Yeah, this is the dogma that when Christ died, he descended into hell, where he emptied the first level of the righteous dead, both Jews and perhaps some righteous Gentiles. And such a view mistakes or perhaps conflates Hades for hell, and this view also prefers the Latin form of the Apostles' Creed, which reads, ad inferna, into hell, rather than ad infernos to the dead ones. To release these faithful dead, Christ proclaims the gospel to them, giving them an opportunity to respond to the gospel in the fullness of time since they had expressed faith in Yahweh and his coming Messiah. Now, support for this dogma is scant at best, including perhaps, uh, and perhaps especially, motivated by a reading of 1 Peter 3.19, which, in my perspective, is suspect, and I think I'll demonstrate that in my exegesis of the text. Support of this view is also dependent upon a reading of Matthew 27.51-53, which is similarly suspect. And in Matthew 27, verses 51 to 53, that records how, at the death of Christ, a number of supernatural events occurred, including tombs being opened and the resurrection of many saints. Saints only, by the way, and therefore none of the disobedient. Many of the saints, therefore not all the saints, only select saints. Now, speculation abounds as to the identity of these saints, and it includes Job, the patriarchs, Zechariah, John the Baptist's father, that is, Simeon, Anna, Joseph, Jesus' father. 
these are all merely guesses. Matthew leaves the identity of these saints anonymous. This is a mysterious event. However, a few things concerning this miracle are certain. First, it is in connection with Jesus' death. The resurrection of these saints occurs right at the moment of Jesus' death and therefore points to the significance of the death of Christ. The emphasis, then, is on Jesus' death as opposed to his descent into Hades. Second, the appearance of these raised saints is in connection with the resurrection of Jesus. That is, their appearance occurred subsequent to Jesus' resurrection. That's what the text says, uh, by the way. While they were raised the moment Christ died, they appeared in Jerusalem, the holy city, after his resurrection. Therefore, what these saints did during the three days before Jesus' resurrection, well, that's as much a mystery as what Jesus was doing for three days in the Hadean realm. That's my take on the heroine of hell, the heroine of Hades. Alex, what do you think? Okay, so the heroine of Hades refers to the idea that while Christ was disembodied, like all disembodied souls, he went down into Hades, which is the underworld. Uh, That first part, Nick and I agree on. Christ descended into Hades. I think you, you believe that, right, Nick? Yep. Okay. But what Jesus... Uh, did while he was down there, that's where the debate lies. Uh, There are biblical data points, but Nick and I will connect these biblical data points in very different ways, or or perhaps in Nick's case, he won't connect these points at all, uh, in like the way I'm doing. So I support the view that Jesus preached to the dead while in Hades and brought a multitude of different groups back to life upon his own resurrection. Uh, The support is not scant and is actually the view that was widely held without debate from the earliest Christian writings and is still the view held today by Catholics and Orthodox Christians. And Nick uh, mentioned the Matthew verse in 27. We'll come back to that in just a moment because I have some thoughts on that as well. But a quick reference for our audience who may not know of the difference between hell and Hades. Nick, why don't you talk to us for a second? Is there a difference between hell and Hades? What is that difference? Yeah, there's a big difference. Uh, Hades, uh, that's the, from the Greek. It's uh, That would be a transliteration of uh, Hades um, in the original Greek. In the Hebrew Bible, it's Sheol. And this, is both Sheol and Hades, both refer to the same thing. The unseen realm of disembodied spirits. It is where everyone goes when they die. Their body, the physical part, remains here to be buried, while their soul, the immaterial part, departs. Jesus taught concerning Hades, there are two compartments. The righteous dead are in Abraham's bosom or paradise. Uh, Luke 23, 46 refers to it as paradise. While the unrighteous dead are in torment, and you can see Luke 16, verses 22 and following for Jesus' teaching on that through the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Hades is the waiting room, the holding place. You've been convicted, now you are awaiting sentencing. Hell is the spiritual reality, which is the final fate of the wicked. No one talked about hell more than Jesus. He compared it to fire, to darkness, weeping, and gnashing of teeth, perishing. But all of this, I am persuaded, and I did uh, for my first master's degree, I wrote a thesis on the New Testament doctrine of the final fate of the wicked. I believe all of Jesus' teaching on this is 
figurative. That doesn't mean that hell itself is some kind of figure, but rather the figures serve to communicate a single truth, which is hell is worse than words can describe, and it is far worse than we can imagine. It is to be away from the presence of the Lord, 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 9. That is a state we cannot even begin to fathom because we live in this universe sustained by the power of God's word. And so hell, infinitely worse than anything we can imagine. Uh, So that's the distinction that I see between Hades and hell. Alex, uh, what do you think? Yeah, and I want to second the idea that figurative doesn't mean not real. Uh, Just like parable doesn't mean not real. In fact, those may actually be more real than a literal rending, rendering of, of certain ideas. It's a way of communicating truths that are real. And so that's important to, to remember because figurative speech is all over the Bible and it communicates real truths. So uh, the difference between hell and Hades, it seems to me then, uh, according to the passage about uh, passages about Christ's descent, is that it's it's more accurate to understand Jesus's descent as into Hades and not hell. And so if we're taking hell to mean the final abode of the wicked after the resurrection, uh, maybe that's the, you know, the idea with the lake of fire in John's revelation. Is that what you think, Nick? Oh yeah, yeah, I'm I'm I concur. Lake of fire, hell, place of the final resting for the wicked after the resurrection. So when we talk about Christ's descent, we're talking about his descent into Hades not into hell. I think there's a passage, isn't it, in the Sermon on the Mount that says, um, Jesus says, fear him who can throw both body and soul into hell. That's, uh, I think it's Matthew 10 and like verse 28. That's just off the top of my head. But uh, yeah, no, that's... Kind of points to the bodily resurrection, right? Uh, Yeah, I got it right, 1028. (laughs) There you go. Do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Right, right. So, hell being a future judgment, Hades being the waiting place for the dead until that future judgment. So, hell and Hades, there you go. So, we're talking about Christ's descent then, Nick. Mm -hmm. What other passages might be related to that theme of Christ's descent into Hades? So I'm going to cover all of the passages that I think pertain to the descent of Christ. And uh, I've only got three (laughs) passages, Old Testament and New Testament, that speak to this. Alex is going to have more. First, it begins in uh, Psalm 1610. This is actually quoted by Peter on Pentecost. Uh, in Acts 2 and verse 27. So there's two passages right there. Psalm 16, verse 10, this is King David. He wrote this psalm, and he writes about how Yahweh will not abandon my soul to Sheol. And I've already talked about how Sheol, that's the realm of disembodied spirits. It's a parallel to uh, Hades in the New Testament. And so David, uh, he, he knew that. He knew what Sheol was, and so he writes about it, and he had hope. That since his faith was in Yahweh, he says in verse 8, I have set Yahweh always before me, Yahweh would preserve his life even in the face of death since he is one of God's saints, a holy one. Of course, we know David was a prophet. And Peter gives the Holy Spirit-inspired interpretation of this passage in Acts chapter 2. David was speaking also about Messiah. 
so Acts 2, 27, also verse 31, on the day of Pentecost, Peter quotes this, this psalm at some length, and he affirms David wasn't talking about himself. He, as a prophet, was speaking of the resurrection of Christ. Specifically, David's prophecy was fulfilled in that Christ Christ was not abandoned to Hades. That is, while Jesus' human soul, upon his death, descended to Hades, the unseen realm of disembodied spirits, his soul did not remain there. And so Peter, he continues, he says, this Jesus God raised up, that is, God raised the spirit of Jesus from Hades in order that he might reunite it uh, with his uh, resurrection body. And uh, you get more of this also in John 19, verse 30. He, Jesus, he gave up his spirit. That is his soul. His spirit went to the realm of disembodied spirits for the time that his body was in the tomb. The other text that deals with this is Romans 10 and verse 7. Uh, this is where Paul, quoting and interpreting Deuteronomy 30, verse 13, discussing how the law spoke to righteousness based on faith, asks, who will descend to the abyss? The abyss is comparable to Sheol and Hades. It's a place that people went when they died, and you can see Psalm 107, verse 26, for an example of that. Paul answers the question. He provides interpretation through the lens of Christ by saying, there's no need for any person to descend to the dead in some kind of misguided attempt to bring Christ up from the dead ones. Indeed, such an Odyssean feat has been accomplished by God in the resurrection of Christ. God did what no human could do. He raised Christ's spirit from among the dead ones, reunited it with his body in the resurrection. And by the way, all of that was to bring us righteousness when he did that. That's the point, really, of Romans 10 there in Paul's quotation of Deuteronomy, verse 30. So there you have it from my perspective. Psalm 16, Acts 2, Romans 10. Uh, that's where I see the descent of Christ taught in Scripture. And based on that, by the way, you have two or three witnesses bearing witness to this scriptural truth. Alex, uh, why don't you take off here and talk a bit more about uh, where you see the, the descent in Scripture. Yeah, I'm going to read a few of these passages just because I know that uh, sometimes our audience isn't necessarily sitting in front of their Bible while listening to the podcast. And so you mentioned Psalm 1610, which says, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, which is Hades, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. And as you mentioned, Peter preaches that on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and he says that can't be David because we have David's tomb and his bones, and he's, his body did undergo decay. And so he was speaking about Messiah. And so Jesus, he has been raised from the dead again. And that's what you're seeing here with the Holy Spirit being poured out. That came because Jesus ascended back into heaven. And so Peter says that in Acts chapter 2 when preaching to the Jews. He says it again in Acts chapter 13. Uh, when uh, talking about his uh, preaching to the Gentiles. So that's one passage. Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. You did mention that earlier, the story of the rich man and Lazarus. I want to keep that in, in mind because that does affirm a certain view of the afterlife and a certain cosmology in the ancient Near East and in the Jewish mind. Uh, even if it's a parable, which that's debatable, maybe it's a parable, maybe it's not, but parables work off of elements that are real with some 
additional element of exaggeration. But this does affirm that there is an underworld, that that's where dead people go, that there are compartments and separations uh, for the righteous and the wicked. And that's uh, important to keep in mind when we discuss the topic of Christ's descent into Hades. That's in Luke 16, verses 19 through 31. There's Matthew 27, which Nick mentioned earlier as well. I just want to read that, verses 51 through 53. It says, And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split. The tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs, after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. So the wording, that's the passage, the wording of this passage is a little ambiguous. Um, it doesn't necessarily mean that these people came back to life three days before going into Jerusalem. I know that's Nick's reading, where he thought the souls came back to life and then they did something for three days, but we don't know. It's a mystery what they did for three days before going into Jerusalem. I think the reading can and should, for logical sense, be read as those things happening simultaneously. In other words, after Christ was raised from the dead, these holy ones were also raised. They came out of the tombs and went into the city after Christ's resurrection. Uh, this is the way the early church writers read it uh, unanimously. And when we get to the end of the podcast, I'll read through some of the early church writings. But that's my reading of Matthew 27, verses 51 through 53. Another passage relevant is Ephesians 4, verses 8 through 10. And that says, Paul speaking here, Therefore it says, When he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he also had descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above all the heavens so that he might fill all things. This was another passage that the early church writers understood as referring to Christ's descent into Hades. When Christ descended into Hades, he was the only truly free soul there. All other souls were captive to death in Hades, and Christ led these captives out of the underworld and back into the world of the living, not all souls, but certain groups. And this passage, if taken in this way, uh, then also lends itself to the idea that those whom Christ raised were also likely taken with him back into heaven when he ascended uh, in Acts chapter 1, right? When he ascended into heaven. So Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 through 11 is another passage. It says, For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow, of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Did you catch that? And under the earth. And that every tongue will confess that Jesus, that Christ Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, this passage in Philippians is not used by early church writers in any way that I found. But I think it fits well into the complex of what we're talking about. Christ died so that we could all be saved. If the gospel was really preached in the underworld, the result would be there were knees under the earth bowing at the name of Christ. And thus, even in Hades, Jesus saved people. And I find that whole idea quite beautiful. In the resurrection, Hades will be empty. 
So no knees can bow then, freely or forcefully. So the only time where knees could bow to Jesus under the earth would be sometime between his death and before his resurrection. So I think that's relevant. Another passage, 1 Peter 3, verses 18 through 20, which is the meat of what we're going to get into today. So this is just for your reference, listener, to keep in your mind. Here's what it says. It says, For Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also he went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Like I said, the majority of this episode will circle around this passage, so I'll only preface by stating my position that Peter here is describing Jesus preaching while in Hades to all who died, I think, from Adam until and including those who perished in the flood. And then I will include a few verses later in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 4 through 6, and that says this, In all this they are surprised that you do not run with them into the same excesses of dissipation, and they malign you, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For the gospel for this purpose has been preached even to those who are dead, that though they are judged in the flesh as men, they may live in the spirit according to the will of God. This passage is not far removed from Peter's statement in chapter 3, verses 18 through 20. And I mean that it's, it's, it's not far removed contextually or, or distance-wise. There's not a whole lot of text between those verses. So I think there is a point carried through, but Nick and I are going to debate about what is that point. In fact, I think a strong correlation exists in the wording from 3, verse 18, and 4, verse 6. So in 3, verse 18, Christ was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. But in 4, verse 6, the gospel has been preached to those who are dead, that though they were judged in the flesh, they may live in the spirit. So there's a parallel between the flesh in the flesh and the spirit in the spirit. Christ dying in the flesh, men dying in the flesh. Christ made alive in the spirit, men made alive in the spirit. If we take 3.18 to refer to Christ's physical death, it follows that chapter 4 verse 6 refers to the physical death of man. So we're going to now get into the meat of 1 Peter 3 verses 18 through 20. So Nick, take it away. How does this passage, verses 18 through 20, well even through 22, right, the rest of the chapter, how does that relate to the surrounding context? Because we know there were no chapter divisions originally, right? So what do you think about the broader context of 1 Peter? Right. No, no chapter, no verses, uh, just, uh, just the document itself. And verse 18 begins, for, uh, or uh, because. And that translates the phrase uh, hotikai. And that perhaps is better translated as and since, indicating that Peter intended strong connection to the previous section, which began in 3.8 and uh, runs all the way through the previous verse, verse 17, but especially verses 13 through 17, 
where Christians are exhorted to sanctify Christ in their hearts, in verse 15, and suffer for God's will. Peter now brings Christ full center into the discussion, into that discussion, in order to encourage these persecuted Christians to persevere in the confidence that their salvation and victory has been realized and accomplished in the death and resurrection of Christ. Christ suffered once for sins, begins the verse, and then the verse ends with put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. And then he circles back to the resurrection in verse 21, the end of verse 21, through the resurrection of Christ. So amid suffering for doing good, as verse 17 just talked about, these Christians can be assured and remain firm in their faith, pulling from 5.9, since Christ has won their victory. And then 4, verses 1 through 6, builds on this doctrine and moves into exhortation based upon Christ suffered in the flesh. These Christians are to adopt the same mindset towards their suffering as Christ had in his, which will lead to a renunciation of human passions, that is the selfish will, and it will be an embrace of holy affections and actions, that would be the divine will, and Peter talks about that in 4 and verse 2. While the Gentile, and that would be the lost person as Peter styles them here, uh, while the Gentile, uh, the Gentiles, the Gentile world will find such behavior aberrant, they will give an account for their wicked behavior to the just judge. Indeed, Christ's victory over cosmic powers, the angels, authorities, and powers, Peter mentions in 3.22, similarly that gives him victory over human powers and the right to judge them accordingly, as Peter discusses in 5 and 6, the judge of the living and the dead. So, the Christian involved in the struggle against both cosmic powers and human opponents is already assured of victory over both because of Christ. Their pagan opponents will face condemnation from God. That would be divine justice. But these Christians, even though they may die in the flesh, they will share in God's life. And that's 4 verse 6, my take on it. Uh, so that's how I see... Uh, what Peter says, in, what Peter writes in 3, especially verses 19 and 20, that's the context for uh, what he writes there, what I see. Alex, what do you think? Yeah, I think there is some overlap between what we're both seeing, because I do believe this passage relates to the surrounding context through the theme of judgment. And you mentioned that. The persecutors of these Christians, they will be judged for their wicked deeds. But if the Christian perseveres, then he will be judged worthy of a reward. And so some measure of judgment can occur in this life on earth. It's not the final judgment, but some judgment does occur on earth. Some measure of judgment can even occur under the earth in Hades. Think about the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man is undergoing a judgment of punishment in Hades. Lazarus is undergoing a judgment of rest and reward in Hades. But the ultimate judgment comes on the day of resurrection, and, and Peter points that out more than once or twice in the first two chapters. I think the point being is that Christ has been made judge overall. I think that's what Peter is pointing towards in this passage. He's been made judge overall in the heavenly realms. You get that from chapter 3, verse 22, of the living on the earth and of the dead under the earth. And that's 
my take on chapter 4, verses 5 and 6. You know, Paul says in Romans chapter 14, verse 9, and this is, I think, a very relevant passage. Paul says, For to this end Christ died and lived again. It's his physical death, right? Not his spiritual death, because Christ never sinned. He never had a spiritual death. Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. So you have a parallel there between physical death and the spiritual life. Okay. While Nick's position is that the dead that were preached to are actually Christians and the preaching occurred while they were alive, my position is that the dead were prisoners of Hades and Christ set them free upon their receiving of the gospel while he was among them in spirit. I think both positions do fit within the context. So I'm not saying, you know, I'm not saying I'm disregarding what Nick says. I, I, I appreciate what Nick says. But in my opinion, I opt for what I see as an easier explanation. Uh, and we'll talk more about that as we get into it, Nick. So what what do you think Peter means when he writes that Jesus was put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit? Well, I think uh, I think it's the same thing that you just quoted from Paul in Romans 14, verse 9. For to this end Christ died and lived again. That's typical death and resurrection language. And so... I think that's exactly what Peter has in mind here as well uh, when he writes. It's actually a uh, what's called a men-day argument. There's a men-day construction in the original language, and it could be translated this way. Literally, on the one hand, put to death in flesh or in the flesh. On the other hand, brought to life by the Spirit. And uh, that that, on the one hand, on the other hand, uh, construction isn't typically brought out in most English translations, unfortunately. Put to death. That has such close proximity to what Peter just mentioned about Christ's atoning death. Christ suffered once for sins, right at the beginning of the verse. That must refer to the death of Christ. In the flesh, I believe that refers to Christ's human nature, which was subject to death. He had a physical body that died on the cross. And so the whole phrase, put to death in the flesh, that is a reference to Jesus' death on the cross with possible allusions to the judicial proceedings, the condemnation that was uh, his right before the crucifixion uh, and even during the crucifixion. That would, by the way, be important for Peter's application of the doctrine later in chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, where apparently the Christians in Asia Minor were being judged in the flesh uh, as well. Now, and again, uh, this is this is where the debate lies, right? Uh, my English standard at the end of verse 18 says, made alive in the Spirit. I would prefer brought to life. That's a term which is synonymous with the more common term for resurrection. They Different terminology, but the same concept, the same idea is uh, evident in the, the terms that are used. And this is evident from the usage of this in Romans 8, verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life, same word that Peter uses here in uh, 3.18, uh, 1 Peter, he will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Uh, and that is that is resurrection language all the way around, all the way through. It's also evident from John 5, 21, uh, the, the uh, 
correlation between these terms. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, that's the same word, by the way, gives them life, same word that Peter uh, uses uh, again in here in 3.18, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. And so the interchangeability of these terms is clear, and so brought to life here refers to the resurrection of Christ. The context likewise points to this conclusion. In verse 21, he talks about the resurrection of Jesus, uh, Jesus Christ, uh, there at the end of that verse. Now, what about the phrase, by the Spirit, brought to life by the Spirit? And I believe it's a capital S, not a lowercase s here. It's referring to the Holy Spirit, and that seems appropriate to translate uh, the term there. Uh, Numati, given the parallel with sarki, sarkos, and, and uh, numos, the, the juxtaposition between those. That's a common parallel you get throughout the New Testament, flesh and spirit. Uh, so you can see especially this in uh, the uh, spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, Matthew twenty six forty one. But especially in Paul's discussion of Romans 8, 4 through 6, also verse 9 in Romans 8, and of course Galatians 5, 16 and 17, the, how the flesh and the Spirit, capital S, they are in opposition to one another. There's also a rather interesting parallel that is brought out uh, by some in uh, between 1 Peter 3 and 1 Timothy 3 and verse 16, where the Apostle Paul uh, is quoting what seems to be an early Christian creed uh, in First Timothy three sixteen. Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, pro- uh, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. And so following that early Christian creed that would no doubt have predated, unless Paul is uh, developing it kind of off the top of his head, uh, but it would have predated 1 Timothy uh, and Paul's writing of that, that shows the early church, there was a basic understanding that while Christ appeared in the flesh, it was by the Spirit that he was vindicated. Namely, and here's Paul in Romans 1.4, according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead. Indeed, the connection between uh, the Holy Spirit and resurrection. That's evident throughout the New Testament. John 6, uh, 63, the Spirit gives life. So, therefore, in a very brief, very terse phrase, it's just six words in the original language, Peter captures the heart of the gospel in Christ's death and resurrection, put to death in the flesh, brought to life by the Spirit. And since it is this phrase which Peter will refer to in 3 verse 19 when he says, in which... That's how verse 19 begins. I believe that Dalton, in his book on this this passage, I believe his conclusion is appropriate. There is no ground for seeing in 1 Peter 3.19 the activity of Christ's soul in the interval between his death and resurrection. And look, I've already demonstrated, I, I believe there are other passages which without doubt discuss Christ descending to the dead. 1 Peter 3.19, for me, is not one of them. It is his death and resurrection that is in view, and it is in that state, and we'll talk about that when we get there, but that he goes and does what he does. So that's what I see here in uh, 1 Peter 3, 18. Uh, what, what do you think, Alex? Well, I think what Peter means by put to death in the flesh 
is a reference to the crucifixion. And I think we're in agreement there. We both believe that that's what Peter's referring to in 1 Peter 3.18, that he had been put to death in the flesh. That's the crucifixion. However, what does made alive in the spirit mean? That's where we are disagreeing. Uh, it is not a reference to the resurrection. That's what you think. I disagree. Why? Because that reading, in my view, makes a huge mess out of verses 19 through 20. And it also offers really no explanatory power for how the spirits in prison were preached to and how that connects to Christ being alive in the spirit. When Christ gave up his spirit on the cross, he went somewhere in spirit without a body. And so for me, the answer is simple. Christ in his spirit went to where all disembodied spirits go, except this time there was an exception. This spirit, the spirit of Christ, was not in the same condition as all the other spirits in Hades who had, ever, who had, who had entered into Hades after leaving their bodies. The spirit of Christ, he was free. Death could not hold him. Nor could death hold any of those whom he wished to set free with the gospel. And so Christ leads out of the prison of Hades a host of captives, which is what I think Ephesians 4 is referencing. So made alive in the spirit is his unique spiritual condition that he was in when he descended into Hades. I think that's what Peter has in view. You don't. So well, let's move on with verse 19 then and see how else this can be interpreted. How Nick, how do you understand the phrase in verse 19, in which, because it's connected to made alive in the spirit, so in which, what does that mean? Yeah, without a doubt, uh, verse 19 is connected to verse 18. That's without dispute. Uh, the kai, uh, sometimes translated as and, that's unfortunately left untranslated in English, but... Uh, the relative pronoun that Peter is using here, that demonstrates Peter is continuing his thought. Christ brought us to God through his death and resurrection, because that's the point, right? That's the point right there in the heart, uh, that he might bring us to God, the heart of verse 18. Christ does that through his death and resurrection, which is interesting, right? Because I'd like to hear an explanation of how he brings us to God and talking about these Christians now in Asia Minor, how does that work with the Hadean descent? Anyway, um, the death and resurrection definitely brings us to God. And also, as the risen Lord, he went and he made proclamation to these disobedient spirits. And I'll work through the explanation of who they are and what all that is involved, uh, what all is, in, is involved with that. But uh, in which uh, this... Is, it seems to be a favorite phrase of Peter. He uses it elsewhere in uh, 1 Peter, just off the top of my head. I believe it's one six two two. I think there's a place in chapter 4 he uses uh, the same kind of construction. But um, that phrase, in which, can also be translated, in which state or in that state, and refers to either spirit, again, capital S in the preceding verse, or the entire phrase, put to death in the flesh, made alive in the spirit, uh, of, the, again, that same verse, the same phrase there. Uh, if the former, uh, then that phrase there, in which, is actually equivalent to in the spirit or in spirit. And that's a phrase which appears over 40 times in the New Testament. And the most notable example of this is in the creedal material, 
that Paul quotes in 1 Timothy 3, 16. It's a remarkable parallel, by the way. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit. And in the, the latter case of the whole phrase uh, being, and by the way, vindicated by the Spirit, that would have been, that's, a, that's clear resurrection language as well. Uh, so I, and I believe that parallel there is strong and uh, intentional, at least for the Holy Spirit who inspired the text. Uh, in the latter case, that Peter has the whole phrase in mind, put to death in the flesh, made alive in the Spirit, the state, in which state, or in that state, which Christ goes and makes proclamation, is in his state as the risen Lord, the one who was put to death in the flesh but was made alive by the Spirit. And interestingly, both options of interpretation, I think, yield the same result. It is after the resurrection that is in view. On this occasion, which is another acceptable translation of that phrase, on this occasion, Christ went and proclaimed. Uh, In order to interpret this as the descent, I believe some assumptions need to be made that uh, first made alive in the Spirit. That means other than it does elsewhere in the New Testament. In fact, everywhere else in the New Testament. This is actually then kind of a a unique understanding, unique uh, to Peter even, uh, uh, than it does elsewhere in the New Testament, which everywhere else in the New Testament, it has to do with resurrection. Uh, And also, the other assumption that needs to be made is the phrase is parenthetical, and on the occasion or in the state of being put to death in the flesh, Christ went and proclaimed. In other words, uh, made alive in the Spirit is is sort of uh, uh, parenthetical, uh, and uh, uh, it, what, what, again, what is emphasized here is uh, the, the state in which he is uh, a spirit being, something like that. But both of these interpretive moves, I believe, are foreign to the context of both the epistle and the New Testament, and I think it's also foreign to sound exegetical methods of, uh, of what, uh, what we typically do when we take a text of Scripture and interpret it. My take on it. Alex, what do you think about that phrase, in which? Right. So, for some reason, you know, you have your reading of the Greek, but the Christians who spoke Greek, read Greek, and wrote Greek didn't read it in the way that you're reading it at all, which I find strange. I have a list of quotes from early Christian writers over the first 300 years of Christianity, that's the anti-Nicene fathers, and they unanimously and without debate held to a view of Christ descending into Hades to preach the gospel to the dead and to bring them back to life. To be honest, I don't quite follow the Greek arguments you're making uh, here. I don't quite follow those myself, but I'm just saying it really is no stretch of the imagination to see Peter referencing Christ's descent in this passage. Christ was made alive in the Spirit. That's a phrase which I think refers to the unique quality of Christ's Spirit after it left his body, after it left his dead body. And that's a quality which, by the way, now exists in us, in our spirit, through Christ. And so he was the first one to be made alive in the Spirit, but now we are made alive in the Spirit. We have been made alive together with Christ, says Ephesians 2.5 and Colossians 2.13. So Christ's unique spiritual condition of sinlessness, it made him especially equipped to become the firstborn from the dead through his resurrection. Now, we Christians who have been made alive 
in the Spirit through him by the forgiveness of our sins, when we die, likewise we will have already been made especially equipped for experiencing our own resurrection. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 22 through 23, which says this, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. But in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, after that those who are Christ's at his coming. So again, to me it's very simple. It's Christ was made alive in the spirit. That's his spiritual condition when he goes down into Hades. And then he did something while he was in Hades. And I think Peter tells us here what he did. So we have to unpack that then, Nick. There are other things going on in verse 19. So who, in your view, then, are the spirits in prison? Yeah, there are two principal opinions concerning who the spirits in prison are. There may be other options, but I think there's two kind of main ones. One is the the souls of human beings who perished in the flood. The other is uh, the disobedient fallen angels of Genesis chapter 6. To the former, the first, souls of human beings perish in the flood. Uh, In the New Testament, the term used here for spirits is the word normally used for non-human spiritual beings. In other words, the well, the angels, authorities, and powers that Peter will mention in verse 22. For example, especially in the Gospels, Jesus cast out spirits with a word. Uh, and so these are uh, evil spirits which were harassing, oppressing, demonizing people during Jesus' ministry. Uh, they are also the same spirits which were subject to the 72 that uh, Jesus sent out. Luke 10, verse 20, it's the same word that's uh, used uh, there that's uh, used in uh, 3.22 for Jesus' subjection of the disobedient spirits. Uh, in fact, only once is the parallel spirits, uh, or the plural spirits, used of dead people. And that is in Hebrews 12 and verse 23, the spirits of the righteous made perfect. Uh, however, in Revelation 18 and verse 2, there's mention how Babylon Uh, That is Rome, from my understanding of uh, what Revelation is talking about. Babylon has become a prison. Uh, And this is uh, the same word uh, that that, uh, uh, Peter uses here for prison. It is a prison for all unclean spirits, Babylon, Rome. Uh, And that's a a linguistic parallel to Peter's phrase here. Uh, And by the way, he wrote from Babylon 5 verse 13. That's, of course, a figure for Rome from my take on this. And so Given these considerations, these spirits in prison, my take is these are fallen supernatural beings whose prison is this planet where they continue their disobedience among humans, including during the times of Noah. These spirits then are the first or the original sinners who pledged loyalty to and were subsequently cast out of heaven with Satan for their disobedience. Such disobedience to God is now their characteristic nature. It's on display throughout time, including during the days of Noah, which uh, Peter will make allusion to here in just a moment. That's my take on this. Alex, what do you think? Well, I'm having trouble following your argument. It it just seems it sounds to me like it jumps around a bit so you say made alive in the spirit actually means jesus's resurrection correct and you say the spirits in prison actually means the demons on earth correct so so then jesus went on an exorcism spree between his resurrection from the dead and ascension into heaven i mean didn't he already 
do the exercising before he died? And how does he, in your view, proclaim to those spirits after being made alive in the spirit? And so how can their earth also be their prison? I mean, that's based off of Revelation 18.2. So you said you believe Babylon is Rome, but you're now saying that Babylon also is the earth? I'm really sure the, the linguistic parallel there that's that was the point of that okay but also revelation 18 2 says babylon became a prison for unclean tense correct yeah Yeah. it became so it means it wasn't it wasn't one before she was fallen before rome was fallen or babylon was fallen so i don't know i mean revelation 18 sounds like a destroyed city which became a haunt of demons just like we see in the old testament in our featured creature episodes when god foretells of you know the temporal destruction of a nation I mean, I think Peter is speaking quite plainly. I mean, the spirits which Christ proclaimed, the words preached, those whom he preached to were those humans that perished in the flood, and possibly even from Adam onward to the time of the flood. I mean, the underworld, the underworld is a holding cell. In other words, it it is a prison for all souls. Now, granted, the rooms are not all the same, right? <laughs> some some are nice, some are not so nice. But uh, we see that in the rich man of, in Lazarus. But when I, when I think of Christ's descent into Hades, and the reason why this makes sense to me, I don't know, it just rings, it rings true, because Christ came to save all of humanity. And so it makes sense to me that he would start with Adam onward. And so Christ descended into Hades. He preached the gospel, freed captives, and led a host back to earth and then to heaven. So I think it just shows that the antediluvian world was given a second chance in the underworld because Christ, in his mercy, chose not to leave them without hope before the resurrection. I I think that's what Peter is talking about. But So you're, you, you are equating the prison with Hades, is that? Yeah, that's right. I'm equating the prison with Hades because Hades is a holding cell for all disembodied spirits and that's Can you show me a place in the New Testament where the plural for spirits refers to human souls Didn't you quote one from Hebrews the spirits of the righteous but that had a qualifier to it okay. Whenever whenever you find spirits plural without a qualifier like that it is uh, in the New Testament, at least, it is in reference to uh, rebellious spirits, the non-human yeah. beings. Yeah, I mean, maybe it's unique here to First Peter three. I don't got really a lot see of unique features here. The significance of that maybe it does have a lot of unique features. I mean, it's a it's a very interesting passage, and that's what makes it interesting is it has so many unique features. Well, I want to hear the rest of your view, though, Nick. We're, we're still in verse 19, and the question now is, when did Christ go? So he went and made proclamation to the spirits. So uh, here's the timing question. When do you think Christ went? Yeah, let's hone in on the word that Peter uses here. He went. When Christ is presented in the New Testament as descending to the dead, it is portrayed as such, a descent down, either to Sheol slash Hades, like Psalm 16.10, Acts 2, verses 27 to 31, or the abyss, Romans 10, verse 17. 
In addition, the term Peter uses here is never used for that kind of going. On the other hand, Christ's ascent to the Father's right hand is portrayed as he went or he has gone. There's a going involved, which is the the term that is used uh, here in 3.19. You can see John 16.28, Acts 1 and verse 11 for examples of that. Indeed, this same word is used in this very same context to describe how Christ has gone into heaven. Uh, Verse 22, who has gone into heaven. Same word. Same word is used there. And so, therefore, in agreement with what has been established elsewhere in the New Testament and also in this given context, Christ went in his risen state as the resurrected Lord. He presented himself as a final victorious proclamation that he, Jesus, is Lord. Uh, And again, all that rooted and firmly based upon his resurrection. So that's my take on when Christ went. When did he go? What do you think, Alex? So, okay, again, I'm having a little trouble following your interpretation you're saying that Christ, after he was made alive in the Spirit, which you say is his resurrection, then went, which you say is, is back to heaven, that's his ascension? Yes, and part of the ascension, part of the going. And, okay. Yeah, was the part proclamation. The, yeah. Okay, and proclaiming to the spirits in heaven, you say, are the demons on earth, right? I'm going to get to, so... Uh, Do you want me to... It, you it's in wait? the very next question that I address okay. that, but... all yeah. right. Well, I, I'm curious to know then how, how the demons on earth get proclaimed to if Christ ascended already into heaven, but I, I guess you're going to talk about that next. My view is that Christ went and preached to the spirits in prison after he died on the Christ, cross while he was alive as a spirit in the underworld, and essentially Christ began to save all of humanity by starting with those who died first. So... Continue your interpretation, Nick. Where did Christ go then? Yeah, I don't think location and cosmic geography are necessarily Peter's concerns. But I do believe certain conclusions can be drawn about where Christ was when he made proclamation. Uh, Peter says Christ has gone into heaven, but it seems like on his way, as he went up in the clouds, as is talked about in Acts chapter 1, um, he traveled through the air, and that is the space between heaven and earth occupied by and under the control of the prince of the power of the air. That's a quote from Ephesians chapter 2. Uh, the prince of the power of the air and other spiritual forces of darkness. That's their, their haunt, as it were. And also occupying the air are other supernatural powers which are under the control of God, and they obey the will of God. Those are the good angels. And so I think it's here in the unseen realm of spiritual powers that Christ proclaimed his triumphant victory over the evil spirits and subjected them to himself. And it may have been a verbal thing, but I think all Jesus, the resurrected Lord, all he has to do is show up, and they know. And it is to the uh, the praise of the good angels, and it is to the condemnation of the evil angels that uh, this happened. So uh, that's what I see here. Alex, uh, what do you think? Where did Christ go when he went? So if you say that the spirits in prison actually means the demons on earth, then I don't see how this works, because the spirits in the air are not on earth. And also, do you know of any text, biblical or extra-biblical, 
where the air is described as a prison for spirits? Well, if Satan was cast down and he's the prince of the power of the air, I would say that this planet is his prison and that is where he is held. So air, prison, yeah, I, I don't have a problem making that connection. Okay, but do you have a text or anything that says Ephesians the air 2. is a prison? Ephesians 2, the prince of the power of the air. And that means prison. Okay. The same way prison that, means Hades in your view, so. I don't think that works. So actually, that is my answer. I think I know, Hades, I know it. Hades as a prison with gates, right, with separate regions for the wicked and the righteous, even with prison guards, inseparable chasms, that's all stock cosmology, both during the Second Temple era and in the early church. The default picture in the ancient Near Eastern worldview of a spiritual prison would have been the underworld. That's what makes sense out of the rich man and Lazarus. Even when Jesus says, the gates of Hades will not overcome my church. Well, usually we think of gates as in like, we're going to go storm this castle and break down the gates. Well, gates are also in prisons and they're used to keep people in. And so, Hades as a prison is pretty much the stock worldview of the ancient Near East. So I, I think that would be the default for the readers of the New Testament and and the Old Testament, really, the whole Bible, the whole ancient Near East. So, all right. We have these two trajectories. They're very different. Let's continue. What did pro- Christ proclaim? So he pro- made proclamation to the spirits in prison, what was it that he proclaimed, Nick? While the primary proclamation in the New Testament is the gospel. In other words, whenever you come across this term, it is in connection with the gospel. Uh, that is uh, even the, the salvation, the proclamation of the salvation of sinners through Christ's atoning work on the cross. There are times when such proclamation is paralleled with uh, telling the good news. Uh, and, uh, for example, Luke 8 and verse 1, proclaiming and telling the good news of God's kingdom. Uh, Context, especially in the New Testament, will make it clear that what is proclaimed is the gospel. However, the primary meaning of the word itself, without the qualifier, uh, the gospel, something along those lines, uh, the primary meaning is to proclaim an event publicly, and such usage is found in the New Testament. For example, Luke 12 and verse 3, what you have heard, uh, what, you have, what you have whispered in private uh, rooms will be proclaimed on the housetop, same root as the word that uh, Peter uses here in 319. Jewish moral instruction is the content of proclamation in Romans 2 and verse 21. Uh, in Peter's writings, Second uh, Peter 2 verse 5, we have Noah presented as a herald of righteousness. The public event that Noah announced was the flood. And, of course, given the proximity to the Noah reference that's coming up in 3 and verse 20, it seems appropriate to recognize the proclamation of Christ not as the preaching of the gospel to spirits in prison, something, by the way, that throughout the New Testament is aimed exclusively at uh, uh, living humans. But like Noah, Christ heralds his own lordship by showing in the spirit showing himself as the risen Christ in the spiritual realm. Jesus is Lord. That means that the rule of the spiritual forces of darkness is over and therefore Christ does not 
proclaim the gospel, especially not with a view toward conversion, but rather as uh, the creed that Paul cites over in First uh, Timothy chapter 3, uh, verse 16. He was seen by angels, and this served as an announcement of victory over the cosmic forces of evil. Uh, so that's the proclamation aspect for me. What do you think, Alex? Okay. <laughs> so now I'm really confused, okay? So you're saying Christ was made alive in the Spirit, which actually means his resurrection. And then after that, he went, which you say he means ascended back to heaven. And that he proclaimed, which you say actually means displayed himself, to the spirits in prison, which actually means demons trapped on earth, but also somehow in the air. And somehow also that all connects to those disobedient in Noah's day leading up to the flood. Okay. I that's very I find that very confusing. Um, I'm going to continue to propose a more simple interpretation that Christ preached the gospel to dead people who died from Noah's day and earlier in order to give them a chance to be saved, especially since they lived before the cross and wouldn't have the same advantage uh, as us who live after the cross. And that's that's all I'm going to say. Well, can you give me an instance where Elsewhere in Scripture, in the Bible, where you have a second chance given to the dead. I don't, I don't think there's going to be a passage any more direct than what Peter has here in 1 Peter 3. Then maybe by allusion? Yeah, all of the ones that I mentioned at the beginning of the episode, I think, are allusions to that event. Like in Philippians 2, with the knees bowing under the earth. Um, Romans 14, with Christ having lived and died, so he can be the Lord and judge over the living and the dead. And so I think that's an allusion to that as well. And the Ephesians 4 passage, I think, is an allusion how he descended to the lower regions and ascended with a host of captives. I think that's another allusion to this preaching and freeing that took place when Jesus was in the underworld. And there are and the other passages I mentioned as well, but uh, I think I think those all do support by way of illusion uh what Peter is is talking about here in 1 Peter 3. So then in your view it's not just for the righteous dead that Christ descends, it's for everybody to get a second chance. Uh yes and no. So I'm going to hold off on answering okay. that. Okay. I see what you're saying. Uh and I see what you're saying. But when I get to the early church writers, the debate wasn't whether Christ preached to the dead or not. There was a debate within that accepted presupposition of who did he specifically preach to and who were the ones that came up with him out of Hades. That's, that, that is a debate where the church fathers uh, talked um, and, and had different ideas about. So I want to wait until we get to there just to see what they thought. Um, because otherwise I'll be saying the same thing twice. But uh, I think we have three more questions or two more questions left before we get there. So, Nick, I I think we're going to get to something where we actually have some common ground here. All right. So do you think Peter was dependent upon the book of Enoch when he wrote this passage? 
Yeah, much is made about Peter's assumed familiarity with and usage of the Jewish tradition and intertestamental literature regarding Enoch. Uh, some make note of how Peter talks about spirits in prison and how that is how the fallen angels are described in First Enoch imprisoned inside the earth. Uh, that's First uh, Enoch 14, verse 15. However, spirits is a term used in First Enoch for the soul's of dead humans, and always with a qualifier. Uh, for example, in 22.3 of First Enoch, spirits of the souls of the dead, while it is angels and watchers uh, who are in prison uh, in First Enoch. Additionally, Enoch's descent and proclamation is paralleled by some who see in First uh, Peter 3.19, Christ's descent and proclamation. While Enoch went, same word used by Peter, his proclamation is never called uh, in that way. It's never called a proclamation, it, and to use the same word that Peter uses here, Caruso. Uh, never called that. Also, based upon the foregoing interpretation concerning the resurrection and ascent, it seems more consistent, if one were to argue Peter relied upon any Enoch tradition, it would be more likely to see Peter relying upon second Enoch, wherein Enoch ascends to the second and fifth heavens, where condemned angels are prisoners under guard, uh, that's uh, Second Enoch 7, 1 through 3. In fact, it is such contrast with the Enoch tradition, which leads me to believe that Peter is not depending upon such source material. Rather, he's presenting a full-orbed doctrine of Christus Victor, the victorious Christ, who, unlike Enoch, tastes death fully, body and soul, only to be loosed by its pangs and, as the risen Lord, ascend into heaven, even to the Father's right hand. And on the way, in the air, he presents himself alive as a final declaration of his victory over the disobedient angels, authorities, and powers, perfectly subjecting them to his lordship and perhaps announcing their doom is imminent, but that would be speculative. So that's, that's what I see here. Um, a lot of contrast. But uh, what do you think, Alex? Well, fi- finally, we do agree on something. Maybe <laughs> not for all the same reasons. But uh, I-, I do think Peter is familiar with First Enoch. I mean, it was a very popular uh, writing. And the Enochian template, just that basic storyline of how Genesis 6 was interpreted, I mean, that was pretty widespread. Um, and the Genesis 6 interpretation, I'm referring to the idea that fallen angels came and mated with women and the result of their children was that they became they were giants so i think peter does know of that and he does follow that template that story uh we see that in second peter 2 verse 4 however there are several disconnects from christ's descent into hades and enoch's descent to the imprisoned watchers i've mentioned uh scholar dr michael heiser before and i do agree with him on a lot of things but uh he says that christ is the the new Enoch here in this passage. I disagree with that. Um, first, you mentioned that Christ descended through death, not after some ascension as with Enoch, where it says, you know, he was, he was taken, he walked with God and he was taken and he was, and then he was no more. Uh, also, you mentioned the imprisoned angels are called watchers. I think that's probably the strongest point to be made here because that would have been the word of choice were Peter trying to draw a Jesus Enoch parallel. That would have just really hit the nail on the head. That would have communicated very clearly to the audience that Peter's drawing this conclusion, this parallel. 
but he doesn't. He doesn't choose the word watchers, which is, uh, I think, a big blow against that uh, idea. So the watchers, another thing about that storyline is when you read First Enoch, they disobeyed during the days of Jared, not during the days of Noah. Peter has the disobedience in the days of Noah specifically in mind. So that doesn't fit well with First Peter 3.20. Also, um, according you know to my view, the Watchers are in Tartarus. Second Peter 2.4, they're chained up in gloomy darkness in Tartarao, is what he says in the Greek Tartarus. That's like a maximum security spirit prison in the lowest of lowest depths of Hades. It's called the pit sometimes in Hebrew. And if you were reading Greek mythology, Tartarus is where they believed the Titans were imprisoned in Greek mythology after the um, Titanomachy, the battle of the Titans and the gods. And so that's, again, it's a separate place in all of these cosmologies. It's a separate place from the other parts of Hades where disembodied spirits are kept. Uh, Finally, the Watchers, they have to wait until the Day of Judgment. So they're Their holding time is set. It is unchangeable. In fact, that's the point in 1st Enoch is when Enoch is told to descend to them, is to tell them that their fate is unchangeable. And you get that in 2nd Peter 2, 4 and in Jude 6. So they already, the watchers already know that, you know, according to 1st Enoch anyway, that it would be really a moot point for Jesus to go proclaim anything to them, even if it was a victory. But here's a side note, uh, your theory on Peter knowing 2nd or 3rd Enoch, I don't think that works because those are written after Peter wrote, so not I don't follow that. But in summary, Peter is not using Enochian material or drawing from the Enochian template in this particular passage, 1st Peter 3, 18 through 20. So I think that, you know, it's interesting, it's worth discussing, but that's where I land. So, Nick, last question before we get to the um, early church writers. What is the relevance, do you think, of going and proclaiming upon the present context, right? So, proclaiming is not just here in this passage. It has a broader use in Peter's letter. So, talk about that. Yeah, what's it all about? Um, I've worked uh, diligently to show the intelligibility of the death and resurrection and ascension motifs that are present here in three six uh, excuse me three eighteen through twenty two uh, and how that relates to the rest of the New Testament teaching uh, both uh, linguistically thematically and uh, the rest now let's bring it all home what does my interpretation mean uh, and what Peter writes to these Christians Based on that understanding, uh, what does it mean for these Christians? These Christians in Asia Minor are enduring evil, reviling, and slander from outsiders. They are suffering for righteousness' sake. 3, 18, 14, and 16 uh, specifically mention that, the verses immediately preceding uh, these verses. The Gentile society around them is hostile to the gospel and malign these Christians' efforts at holiness. For verse 4, Peter will write about that. And while it may be verbal, the persecution is real, and it will escalate. So what is the basis for Peter's exhortation to them to fear not and not be troubled, as he writes in 3.14? He points these Christians back to the heart of the gospel. Christ's suffering unto death, 
his resurrection, and his exaltation above all spiritual powers, which is what 3, 18 through 22 is talking about in my view. It is difficult to see how a posthumous uh, posthumous proclamation, uh, proclamation made in Hades, how that would inspire or strengthen these Christians facing persecution, how giving a second chance to the dead would have any kind of inspiration or any kind of strength offered, uh, any kind of exhortative power uh, for these Christians in Asia Minor. The faith of these Christians, Peter is emphasizing this, the faith of these Christians is well-placed in Christ. They have rightly pledged allegiance to Christ through baptism, and the call is now to cease from sin and live for God's will, 4 verses 1 and 2. The unbelievers around them will hate it. They will think it's strange. They will further malign them, Peter says in 4 verse 4. Nevertheless, the godless pagan will stand before the divine judge, the judge of the living and the dead. That is, humans, whether living or dead at Christ's coming. While this reading and the proposed exegesis of 319 offered, uh, with this, 4 verse 6, I believe, stands not as a further comment on Christ's descent, where he goes and preaches the gospel of the dead, either as a post-mortem opportunity of salvation for all the dead or as a proclamation to the righteous dead. Rather, it reads as an elaboration on verse 5, what J. Ramsey Michaels calls uh, an explanatory postscript pointing to the vindication of this oppressed minority. Those who are dead, who have had the gospel preached to them, are those Christians who heard and believed the gospel while they were alive and have since died in the meantime. And the men day construction is there. There's a a Hina clause that begins uh, this verse uh, as well. And so uh, that accentuates it. On the one hand, these faithful departed, the dead who had the gospel preached to them, they were judged or condemned by people in the flesh, no doubt condemned and judged for their faith in and loyalty to Christ. On the other hand, those dead in Christ live before God by the Spirit, or perhaps in spirit. That could be another way of understanding that in 4, verse 6. Such assurance that although you may pay the ultimate price for following Christ, which is death, you still have life with God by the Spirit. How can we be confident that Christ will vindicate our faith? He's already subjected the evil cosmic powers through his resurrection, and therefore judgment of all the wicked, human and angelic alike, is certain. And so that's how I see 319... uh, and, and really 3.18 through 22, how all that fits in the larger context of, what, 3.8 to 4 verse 6. Uh, so what about you, Alex? Uh, what do you think about the relevance of the going and proclaiming upon the present larger context of First Peter 3 and 4? Yeah, so I think the, the relevance is, as I mentioned earlier towards the beginning of the podcast, is that the point of Peter mentioning Christ's descent and proclamation to souls in Hades is that it fits well into the overall scheme of him, Christ, becoming judge overall. All is heaven, earth, and under the earth. Christ is judge in the heavenly realms. We got that from 322. He is judge of the living on earth. That's why these Christians need to persevere and do what is right. And he is judge of the dead under the earth. And that's why Peter mentions in chapter 4, verses 5 through 6, For this reason, even the gospel is proclaimed to those who are dead. Paul says a similar thing, I think, alludes to the same idea in Romans 14, 9. For to this end Christ died and lived again, 
that he might be Lord of both the dead and of the living. The dead and the living. So, Nick, I think we have well upholstered that subject. Yeah, we did. But I, <laughs> well done, sir. I, I commend you, and I, I, do, I really do appreciate what you had to say. Hats off to you, my friend, as well. Thank you, thank you. Well, I wanted to end with um, some quotes that I found from the early church writers. Uh, you know, what, what do the early church writers say about Christ descending into Hades? Now, the reason I'm I've, saying I've this— I've actually taken notes, by the way. Um, so, how long ago was this? It was a couple months ago, I guess. It was, it was, it was in the lead-up when we were doing First Peter, and I knew this was coming. I went through and looked at the various quotations. Some I think I've— I think I've looked at all these, and I don't know if I've looked at all. Uh, maybe, but I've I've written, I've copied down some notes as well. So I may, I don't know, I may chime in and okay, as you go along. Well, I don't think our audience, you know, is going to have copies of these uh, early church writings. Maybe some of them will, but I thought, you know, it took me a long time to to go through and find all of these. I, you know, I, I spent quite a few, quite a few hours. Um, creating a list of every time you know christian writers for the first 300 years mentioned hell or hades and then i honed that down to the most relevant ones to this discussion and christ's descent into hades and so i'm going to mention who wrote these when they lived and what they said and i just want to put it out there for consideration for the audience because most the most audience you know you're trying you're trying your best just to study the bible you know, you might not have all this extra time because your job is not the same as Nick's job or my job. And so I just wanted to, to have this as a resource, whether you agree with what they say or not. So the first one I have here is Ignatius of Antioch. Now, he lived from 50 AD to 108 AD. And here's what he says in his letter to the Tralians, uh, chapter 9. He says, he, Christ, really and not merely in appearance, was crucified and died in the sight of beings in heaven and on earth and under the earth. By those in heaven, I mean such as are possessed of incorporeal natures. By those on earth, the Jews and Romans, and such persons as were present at the time when the Lord is crucified. And by those under the earth, the multitude that arose along with the Lord. For, says the scripture, many bodies of the saints that slept arose their graves being opened. He descended indeed into Hades alone, but he arose accompanied by a multitude and rent asunder that means of separation which had existed from the beginning of the world and cast down its partition wall. So that's Ignatius. Yeah, it's interesting. Ignatius, he did accept Christ's descent into Hades, though the preaching of the gospel to the dead is absent. He mentions here, the, the scripture is Matthew twenty-seven fifty-two. Uh, as a multitude that accompanies Jesus in the resurrection. This, I believe, is the long reading, the long version of To the Tralians uh, 9. The short version actually doesn't have the descent. That's kind of interesting. Um, there is some uh, discussion that perhaps the uh, Matthew twenty-seven fifty-two text was the genesis for interpreting Christ's descent as kind of a harrowing of Hades type thing. Um, uh, so... Yeah, rather interesting about Ignatius. Yeah. I mean, it, to me, it makes sense that it doesn't quote First Peter three though. Right, that's true. To me, it makes sense that it's connected, um, but you know, maybe, maybe it's not. 
I'm just I want to read these quotes because I think that they're interesting that you have you know these kinds of readings going on so early in the church. So here's the next guy. His name's Justin Martyr. He lived from about 100 AD to 165. And here's what he says in his uh, dialogue with Truffaut, chapter 72. He says, Similarly, have they removed the following words from the writings of the same Jeremiah, that's Jeremiah, which says, The Lord God, the Holy One of Israel, remembered his dead that slept in their graves, and he descended to preach to them his salvation. Now, Irenaeus says the same thing. Irenaeus lived from 130 to 202. And he says, And in Jeremiah, which is Jeremiah, he makes known his death and descent into Hades, saying, And the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, remembered his dead, who already slept in the dust of the earth, and he descended to them to preach the good news of his salvation to save them. Here he also delivers the reasons for his death, that his descent to hell was salvation for the deceased. He does that on demonstration of the apostolic preaching, chapter 78. Now, yeah, what, the, uh, the quote what verse, here, well, hold what on a verse in Jeremiah are they quoting there? That's what I'm going to say. The it's, Jeremiah Logion? Well, hold on. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the very, very interesting thing. Justin Martyr and Irenaeus knew of a passage in Jeremiah that we don't have today. I, I just find that interesting. Some version of the book of Jeremiah had this passage. Justin knew of it. Irenaeus knew of it. And Justin goes so far as to say that the Jews removed this passage. They took it out of the text. Now that, I mean, that's pretty scandalous. Whether that's true or not, I don't know. But obviously Justin believed it was and Irenaeus believed it was. And so was this passage intentionally removed from the book of Jeremiah? I don't know. It could have been. Here's what else Irenaeus says in uh, some of his fragments. He says, When the holy soul of Christ descended to Hades, many souls ascended and were seen in their bodies. Again, a reference to Matthew 27 and, and possibly, you know, Ephesians 4 in my take. Yeah, now, so the interesting thing about Irenaeus also, as it pertains to our discussion of First Peter 3, uh, he does accept and he quotes from First Peter in his writings. He never, though, quotes 319 when discussing the descent of Christ, which is quite interesting. Either he had a different interpretation or he had no confidence in that view. And um, if I'm not mistaken, Irenaeus, he doesn't so much teach the descent as he confronts the erroneous teaching of Marcion of Pontus who taught... Christ descended to Hades and raised the dead, like Cain and the Sodomites and the rest, but he left uh, the righteous, Abel and Enoch and the rest. So he's, he's arguing against uh, Marcion in his writings. Yeah, but he, in that argument, is not arguing whether Christ descended or not, or that whether he ascended with more people with him or not. He's arguing with who did Christ bring back, who did he ascend with. Because Marcion was saying the righteous thought God was trying to trick them, and so they didn't accept the gospel that Jesus preached to them, which Irenaeus and other writers say, that's ridiculous. Not that the descent was ridiculous, or that ascending with souls was ridiculous, but that the righteous would reject what Jesus had to say is ridiculous, because they were so scared of their evil God who was trying to trick them. That was Marcion's, you know, theologies. He thought the Old Testament God was an evil trickster God. So, I'm not saying I want to debate and defend every single one of these early church writers. I mean, they they were flawed men just like you Perfect. and I. That's all I wanted. That's all I wanted. That's that's fine. I'm not saying that uh, 
yeah, these are these are Holy Spirit inspired writers. I'm just saying that it is very very interesting for me to hear what these men thought about and read and and how they read the our our New Testament. They were closer to the writings. They they were closer to the worldview, and I think that is worth at least listening to. I'm not saying accept wholesale, but I'm just saying it's it's to me it doesn't seem fair to dismiss them wholesale either. So I I just want to put it out there and see what people think. I think it's interesting. Here's what Clement of Alexandria says. He says a whole lot in his Stromata, which uh, just means like miscellaneous writings. And book six, chapter six, he writes a lot about the descent. And so I'll I'll read through these. Nick, you might want to get a cup of coffee or, or take a little break. This might be a while. <laughs> Here's what he says. Wherefore, the Lord preached the gospel to those in Hades. Accordingly, the, crypt, the scripture says, Hades says to destruction, we have not seen his form, but we have heard his voice. He might be alluding to the book of Job or something like that. Here's what else he says. Do not the scriptures show that the Lord preached the gospel to those that perished in the flood? So there's your connection to 1 Peter 3. Or rather had been chained and to those kept in ward and guard. And it has been shown also in the second book of the Stromata that the apostles following the Lord preached the gospel to those in Hades. For it was requisite, in my opinion, that as here, so also there, the best of the disciples should be imitators of the master, so that he should bring to repentance those belonging to the Hebrews and they to the Gentiles. So he's saying this is my opinion as to far as like what the apostles did when they died. But he's accepting wholesale that the descent happened, that the preaching of the gospel happened under the earth. And it, he, he says it was to those who perished in the flood. He has other people in mind as well. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read the next section. He says, and as I think, this is Clement talking, the Savior, by the way, did I mention Clement lived from 150 AD to 215 AD? Just wanted to throw that out. Okay, he said, and I, as I think, the Savior also exerts his might because it is his work to save, which accordingly he also did by drawing to salvation those who became willing by the preaching of the gospel to believe on him, whether they were, uh, wherever they were. If then the Lord descended to Hades for no other end but to preach the gospel as he did descend, it was either to preach the gospel to all or to the Hebrews only. If accordingly to all, then all who believed shall be saved, although they may be of the Gentiles, on making their profession there. Since God punishment, God's punishments are saving and disciplinary, leading to conversion, and choosing rather the repentance than the, than the death of a sinner, and especially since souls, although darkened by passions, when released from their bodies, are able to perceive more clearly because of their being no longer obstructed by the paltry flesh, if then he preached only to the Jews who wanted the knowledge uh, and faith of the Savior. It is plain that since God is no respecter of persons, the apostles also, as here, so there, preached the gospel to those of the heathen who were ready for conversion. And it is well said by the shepherd, they sat down with them, therefore, into the water, and again ascended. But these descended alive, and again ascended alive, but those who had fallen asleep descended dead, but ascended alive. Further, the gospel says that many bodies of those that slept arose, plainly as having been translated to a better state. There took place then a universal movement and translation through the economy of the Savior. He goes on to say, Did not the same dispensation obtain in Hades, so that even there all the souls on hearing the proclamation 
might either exhibit repentance or confess that their punishment was just because they believed not. And it were the exercise of no ordinary arbitrariness for those who had departed before the advent of the Lord, not having the gospel preached to them and having afforded no ground from themselves in consequence of believing or not to obtain either salvation or punishment. For it is not right that these should be condemned without trial and that those alone who lived after the advent should have the advantage of the divine righteousness. He says again, if then he preached the gospel to those in the flesh that they might now be, so that they might not be condemned unjustly, how is it conceivable that he did not, for the same cause, preach the gospel to those who had departed this life before his advent? For the righteous Lord loveth righteousness, his countenance beholdeth uprightness, but he that loveth wickedness hateth his own soul. If then in the deluge all sinful flesh perished, punishment having been inflicted on them for correction, we must first believe that the will of God, which is disciplinary and beneficent, saves those who turn to him. So that's not the whole chapter. Those are just little snippets of that chapter. But Clement of Alexandria, he does connect Matthew 27 and 1 Peter 3. Yeah, without a uh, doubt. First church father to do that. Not sure exactly when the Stromata was written. I don't know if you know that. but um, yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I just know he lived from 150 to 215. So we're, we're over 100 years after the fact. And he's also quoting Shepherd of Hermas as uh, – you know, his support for this, that Christ, uh, well, not just Christ, uh, the apostles and teachers preached the gospel of those in Hades yeah, as well. Yeah, he, he quotes that in his little sub-argument for the apostles preaching in Hades as well. He says that the apostle part preaching in Hades is his opinion, and so that's separate from the, the sent itself and Christ preaching, which he does not use Hermas as a support for. He uses Matthew 27 and 1 Peter 3. So... Here's another guy. His name is Tertullian. Well, wait a minute. As I'm reading this, and we want to run through these, but you know, we, we do need to think critically about what's being said here. Uh, the in the descent, what if I'm reading if I'm reading Clement right? Christ brings to repentance those who lived righteousness according to the law and philosophy, which makes sense for Clement in Alexandria because Alexandria was the hotbed of it was a philosophical philosophical school, right? I mean, so and he had. A lot of uh, Platonic influence. Uh, he goes on to influence Origen, his student, uh, in that same Platonic way. Um, and uh, proclamation of the gospel, again, if I'm reading this right, in Hades was that souls either exhibit repentance or confess to just punishment. Um, in fact, uh, one author who was writing about this that I read uh, went so far as to say, I believe this is right, that uh, Clement of Alexandria, uh, he would go so far as to say that the generation that perished in the flood repented before death at the sight of the flood waters. Now, that is a stretch in a, of the imagination, but, uh, you know, you're right. We, these guys are products of their time. Uh, they had a lot of faulty understandings about uh, Scripture and um, even citing as authoritative things that were not scripture so okay well i think we've already established that you're not going to agree with what these guys said about the descent of christ into hades my purpose of reading this no, no, is no, not, no, no, is no, not no. to continue whoa, the debate whoa, whoa 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 i concur that christ descended into hades i disagree with them first of all if they make the connection to 319 i would disagree with their interpretation of that passage second 
I would disagree with their understanding of a proclamation of the gospel being made to people in order that they might get a second chance at obeying the gospel. Uh, that is nowhere taught in Scripture explicitly. I understand uh, the, that. Yeah, so, so I, I concur. I've already established I agree with the teaching of Scripture that Christ did descend to the dead. I, I agree with the confession, right? That's, that's not what I was referring to. I know that you disagree. I'm trying Christ. to make a distinction. I'm trying to be as precise as possible, though, because what, what, what seems to be happening is the conflation of these two as one big fell swoop. And I think that's – I don't think that's accurate. Um, I think these guys, good and godly as they were, I think they missed a lot of stuff. You're, you're about to quote Tertullian. Tertullian yeah. thought uh, – he believed in the corporality of souls. Okay. Had that Hades was in the heart of the earth. Okay. So I know. I know that you disagree with the way they're reading the text and the connections they're making. You and I have already had that debate. I just want to read what they said for our audience so that they can have the information themselves as well, because they're probably not going to read through the early church fathers. And if they don't read through the early church fathers and they don't know what these guys taught in total, they're going to have problems, I think, if we're just quoting snippets and bits from their books. That's well, why I'm trying to bring a full orb portrait here of some of these early church fathers, and and that's important. Well I, well, I don't think you or I are patristics experts here, and so I think it's fine to go ahead and just read what they said, and if the audience is interested in going back and doing a deep dive into the writings and views of these people, then they can do that. You've given your disclaimer, so let's just see what they said. I am by no means claiming to be an expert in patristic studies, but I am. I have read enough to know certain things about these guys to speak intelligently about what they believed in addition to okay. the things that are written here. Okay. Uh, so what can we go Another disclaimer, I guess. To read? Okay. Sure, go ahead. I appreciate the disclaimer. Tertullian, he was born around 155, died around 240. He says in his Treatise on the Soul, he says a lot of things in his Treatise on the Soul, but in chapter 55, he says, With the same law of his being fully complied by remaining in Hades in the form and condition of a dead man, nor did he ascend into the heights of heaven before descending into the lower parts of the earth, that he might there make the patriarchs and prophets partakers of himself. Now, Tertullian will go on in this Treatise on the Soul to explain that he believes a separate place exists for the Christian martyrs. So he has an interesting conversation about that and how that's a that's a paradise distinct from Abraham's bosom based off of, you know, the martyrs under the altar in heaven in Revelation 6, but he believes that when Christ was in Hades, he came and proclaimed and, and rescued the uh, patriarchs and prophets. And so it's interesting I I mention this because there are different groups that people have in mind like is it the disobedience in the flood? Is it Adam? Is it the patriarchs and the prophets? And so there is a debate as to who he preached to and who he raised up with himself. And, and that's all I'm saying. But the presupposition for all of them is that he did descend and he did preach. Hippolytus of Rome, he lived from 170 to 235. He said in uh, some of his fragments on his commentary on the Psalms, he who delivered from the lowest Hades, the man first made of earth, when lost and bound by the chains of death, he who came down from above and exalted earth-born man on high, he who was 
become the preacher of the gospel to the dead, the redeemer of souls, and the resurrection of the buried. So Hippolytus is alluding to Adam being saved uh, in part of that proclamation to the dead. He also says in his treatise on Christ and Antichrist, chapter 45, he says, After this, at the Jordan, seeing the Savior with his own eye, he points him out and says, Behold, the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. So he's talking about John the Baptist. And he'll say he, John the Baptist, also preached to those in Hades, becoming a forerunner there when he was put to death by Herod, that there too he might intimate that the Savior would descend to ransom the souls of the saints from the hand of death. You got book, chapter, and verse on that, Hippolytus? Come on, dude. John the Baptist, come on. So the interesting thing is that these guys are spinning out onto who else preached in the underworld. Did John the Baptist also preach in the underworld? Did the apostles no also preach support. in the underworld? No biblical support. And the reason that they're spinning out on that is because they all assume that Christ preached in the underworld. Here's origin of Alexandria. He lived from 184 to 253, and he is in his uh, debate against Celsus, uh, book 2, chapter 42. He says, Celsus next addresses to us the following remark. So Celsus will say, was a, Celsus was a false teacher. He said, you will not, I suppose, say of him that after failing to gain over those who were in this world, he went to Hades to gain over those who were there. And Origen says to Celsus, whether he like it or not, we do assert that not only while Jesus was in the body did he win over not a few persons merely, but so great a number that a conspiracy was formed against him on account of the multitude of his followers, but also that when he became a soul, without the covering of the body, he dwelt among those souls which were without bodily covering, converting such of them as were willing to himself, or those whom he saw, for reasons known to him alone, to be better adapted to such a course. So Origen, he just kind of says Christ did preach, but who he preached to and who he saved is for his, and what reasons he did that, um, he says, I'm willing to leave that, you know, in as whatever, as a mystery that I don't know. Peter, the first of Alexandria, he was born somewhere in the 200s, but he dies in 311. And he says this, uh, the lights of heaven were afraid, the sun fled away, the moon disappeared, the stars withdrew their shining, and day came to an end. The angel in astonishment departed from the temple after the rending of the veil, and darkness covered the earth on which its Lord had closed his eyes. So he's talking about the death of Jesus. Meanwhile, Hades was with light resplendent, for thither had the star descended. The Lord indeed did not descend into Hades in his body, but in his spirit. He indeed is working everywhere, for whilst he raised the dead by his body, by his spirit, he was, was he liberating their souls. For when the body of the Lord was hung upon the cross, the tombs, as we have said, were opened, Hades was unbared, the dead received their life, the souls were sent back again into the world, and that because the Lord had conquered Hades, had trodden down death, had covered the enemy with shame. Therefore, uh, it was that the souls came forth from Hades, and the dead appeared upon the earth. And so that's, that's fragments of Peter I, and he was quoted later on by Alexander I of Alexandria. He lived around 250 to 326, and he says this in a continuation of the same sermon. 
He says, Now since thou hast come to earth and hast sought for the members of thy fashioning, undertake for man who is thine own, receive that which is committed to thee, recover thine image, thine Adam. So he has Adam in mind here. Then the Lord, the third day after his death, rose again, thus bringing man to a knowledge of the Trinity. Then all the nations of the human race were saved by Christ. One submitted to the judgment, and many thousands were absolved. Moreover, he being made like to man whom he had saved, ascended to the height of heaven to offer before his father not gold or silver or precious stones, but the man whom he had formed after his own image and similitude. And the father, raising him to his right hand, hath seated him upon a throne on high, and hath made him to be judge of the peoples, the leader of the angelic host, the charioteer of the cherubim, the son of the true Jerusalem, the virgin spouse, the king forever and ever. Amen. So he's spinning out on Adam and the importance of Christ raising Adam from the dead, bringing him up into heaven, recovering the original image. Eusebius of Caesarea, he lived from 265 to 339. He uh, writes in about an alleged encounter between the apostle Thaddeus and the ruler of the Edessenes. And here's what Thaddeus says in that alleged encounter that Eusebius records in his ecclesiastical history. He says, Thaddeus says, he humbled himself, talking about Christ, and put aside and made little his divinity, and was crucified and descended into Hades, and rent the partition which had not been rent from the beginning of the world, and raised the dead. And he went down alone, but with a great multitude did he go up to his father. Curiel of Alexandria, a little bit later, 376 to 444 is when he lived. And I have his commentary on the Gospel of John. And in that commentary, speaking of Christ's passion and on the cross where he says it is finished, Kuril says, it looks like Cyril, it's with a C. Uh, he was right then to say, it is finished. Indeed, the hour now summoned him to preach to the spirits in Hades. He visited them that he might be Lord of both the dead and the living. He entered death itself for us and endured this experience that is common to our nature, namely death, according to the flesh, even though as God he was life by nature, in order to despoil Hades and to return human nature to life. Thus he became the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep and the firstborn from the dead, according to the scriptures. And there's one more quote, which is an apocryphal writing, right? It's called the New Testament Apocrypha. And so there are these writings that are not really written by the people they say they're written by. So this one's called the Gospel of Nicodemus. It was written in the mid-300s. And so I'm not saying the Gospel of Nicodemus is, you know, some, uh, you know, legitimate, uh, you know, writing by Nicodemus. It's, it's not. It's by somebody else in the mid-300s. But like most Apocrypha, there are bits of truth that are just taken for granted. And so I, it's interesting to see what was what were those things that they took for granted. So he's here's a scene then for the harrowing of Hades from the Gospel of Nicodemus. It says, While Hades was thus discoursing to Satan, the king of glory stretched out his right hand and took hold of our, of our forefather Adam and raised him. Then turning also to the rest, he said, Come all with me, as many as have died through the tree which he touched. For behold, I again raise you all up through the tree of the cross. Thereupon he brought them all out, and our forefather Adam seemed to be filled with joy and said, I thank thy majesty, O Lord, that thou hast brought me up out of the lowest Hades 
Likewise also all the prophets and the saints said, We thank thee, O Christ, Savior of the world, that thou hast brought our life up out of destruction. So it's funny that these apocryphal writings can sort of write these stories based off of these presuppositional things that people already believed and took for granted. No Augustine, huh? I focused on the anti-Nicene fathers. Um, So I liked... I like to focus on the but earliest. But you have Cyril of Alexandria in here. He's yeah. He's post Nicaea. the only. He's the only one post Nicaea, and I included him because I've read a lot of his commentary on John, and so it was just a familiar resource to me. Um, the early church fathers, the you know the the scope of their writings, it's it's very vast, and so I try to focus which, on just the anti Nicene fathers when I you know, dive into the early church writings because I think it has the advantage of being the closest to the New Testament. And, um, and, and so it's, to me, it's, it's more doable to like filter through that information. Um, that's all the quotes that I put down that I thought were sort of my favorites from the first 300 years of Christianity. Um, I just wanted to, I just wanted to, to give them a voice because uh, I think I think it's worth giving them a voice. You can disagree with their voice; that's fine. They're just men like you and I, uh, but they're men worth worth at least hearing. Not that you have to believe them, but I wanted to include that because, uh, to me, I feel humbled to read what they wrote. Not because I hang on every you know word that came from their pen, but because. They are very close. They are the closest thing we have outside of the New Testament to the early church. And that is uh, meaningful to me. So maybe it's not meaningful to you, but that's all right. And that's, the, that's all I got, the harrowing of Hades. So a long, a long pad, podcast. Uh, you know, maybe the diligent listener had to take it in sections, but uh, that is... Uh, that is the end of our episode, I think, unless you have any final things you'd like to say, Nick. Uh, nope. I think I've said everything I want to say. Yeah, yeah. Well, this was a fun episode. Definitely a lot to think about. And it definitely shows you that uh, Bible study, Bible interpretation, it's hard work. And so I hope that Nick and I have, through our double-edged perspective, given you, O oh, diligent listener, something to think about Uh something of interest in your own study of God's Word. Well, Nick, if uh, the audience wants to uh, help us, how can they help the podcast? Go into the Apple Podcast app and search Swordplay. You'll find all the previous episodes there. You can get caught up uh, with uh, all the various studies we've done. Leave a review. That'll help us boost the uh, podcast in that respective place. And uh, also, if you have a question that you'd like us to answer on air, you can text your question to 316-24-SWORD. That's 316-247-9673. Or they could also email it in, right, Alex? That's right. Send your email questions, uh, requests to swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. That's swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. Uh, I do have a PDF here of all the 
quotes that I gave, both from the uh, Bible and from the early church writers. And so if you want that for your own reference and citations, um, you can send us an email, swordplaypodcast at gmail.com, swordplaypodcast at gmail.com. And I'll happily share that with you. Um, We uh, do appreciate you hanging in there with us. And when we come back, we'll jump into 1 Peter chapter 4. So this has been another double-edged perspective on Scripture. Thanks for tuning in to Swordplay. Swordplay.